Welcome to the Connect Your Health to Life coaching podcast. I'm your host, Seth Lusk. I'm a master certified life coach and published author with a decade-long background working in the health, wellness, and fitness industry as a personal trainer, nutrition specialist, and life coach. If you're anything like me or the clients that I work with, then you might be struggling with some confidence issues or struggling with feeling like you're not living your most fulfilling or authentic life. You may be trying to figure out why you have these amazing desires for what your most fulfilling life would look like, but you can't seem to create consistent action in your life to reflect those desires. So join me as we dive in deep on what it means to truly live a fulfilled and authentic life from the inside out. We're going to look from the perspective of an empowered mindset and uncover some of the reasons why you might be what's holding yourself back from living that most fulfilling life. But don't worry, this isn't about blame, guilt, or shame. This is about empowering you to see. I'm going to break through some of the biggest illusions and myths that we've all been taught to believe along the way. And I'm so excited to have you with me on this journey. So my only question for you is, are you ready to start living your most fulfilling life once and for all? Then let's get started, shall we? Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. For those of you listening in for the first time, welcome, welcome. You all picked an interesting episode to listen in on. It's going to be fun and entertaining. Um, I wanted to put out something a little bit different and special for my birthday week this week. And actually, the episode comes out on my birthday, April 28th. Um, so yeah, everything was pre-recorded a week ago, and I brought on a special guest who's been on the podcast now three times before, so this makes his fourth time showing showing up on the podcast. So those of you who have been listening in since episode number one, I know that you know you're in for a treat. I brought Mike Iameli back onto the podcast to talk with you all about social media. Well, talk with me about social media, and then you guys are going to kind of listen in on the conversation. Um, so for those of you who haven't heard Mike Iameli speak on the podcast before, he's really fun, super entertaining, and candid. He and I both do a lot of marketing for our businesses on Instagram, and so I couldn't think of anyone else who I wanted to have this conversation with about social media and, you know, kind of some of the ways in which we see social media being used in destructive ways, but then also how important social media is for our life and how we can start to use it in more of an empowering way for ourselves. And so I brought Mike on. We had a really super fun conversation, lots of laughs. Lots of joking, but also some serious talk. We hit on some really important topics for people to sort of look into and become aware of when it comes to social media use. So I hope you guys enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Um, yeah, without any further ado, here is my talk with Mike Iamelli about social media. And we are live. Hey, everyone. I've got Mike Iamelli back here again for, I think this is the, the fourth time you've been on my podcast now. I think it four. I believe five, so. Yeah. So so he's kind of made himself home here on the podcast. I invited him back, though. So um, really wanted him to come on and talk with you all and me today about our topic this week, which is social media. Um, and I think Mike's going to have some interesting perspective as always, very candid and fun to talk to. So I wanted to bring him on to address this topic um, because I feel like it would add an extra layer of funness to discussing social media. So Mike, for those people that haven't 
listened in yet to an episode where you've been on talking to me, why don't you introduce yourself really quickly to everybody and then we'll get started. Sure, sure, sure. So I love being here. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I'm Mike Iamelli. Um, basically, what I do for work is I help people to map their experiences and figure out what they subconsciously do every time they're successful. And so people use that for a whole bunch of different things, you know, using that to figure out how to build a business that feels like you and that resonates with people or figuring out how to, you know, have better relationships or better sex or understanding why this relationship didn't work out, but that one didn't, or this didn't feel good for you, but that did. And so really it's just understanding what's your subjective experience, being able to give language to that, and then being able to build a life that hopefully feels like you. Awesome. Which ties in really great to what we're talking about today when we talk about social media, because a lot of the way that people express themselves nowadays um, nowadays appears to be on social media. Um, why don't we start off by by defining when we talk about social media, what does social media mean for you? Oh gosh, this is such a topic for me. So you know, I have a unique experience I think with social media in that I. Um, in some ways, feel like I'm always behind the eight ball on some of these things. And so, you know, I was never that interested in social media. Um, historically, my career path, I was always in more traditional media. And so I worked in public relations, specifically healthcare reform, um, biotech, um, some tech. And so a lot of these technologies, I'll be honest, um, healthcare reform politicians, weren't always traditionally 10 years ago great at social media so this wasn't something that i worked in tremendously you know i did a lot of op-eds i talked to reporters and so in my personal life i also was never that interested in social media and then i had this experience um, for those who don't know i had a viral coming out story and so i had an experience where I was the little social media i was actually on was bombarded with a bunch of um you know, love from some sides, but hate from other sides, stalking situation. And I just thought, I have no interest in this. Like, I don't want to be, you know, involved in this world at all. And it's only been the last, you know, year or so that I've really kind of come back onto social media. And so the world of social media changed a lot in those eight years since I was away from it. But for me, you know, it's an evolving definition. You know, right now I'm most focused on Instagram and I feel like, all of these different platforms have their own climates, right? So there's like, we talk about social media as this, you know, overarching umbrella term. And that's great because it is this way that we are using technology to interact with one another. And maybe that's the most generalized definition I can give. But in my experience or horror stories I've heard, um, Twitter can be entirely different than Instagram, can be entirely different than Facebook. And even in the years from when I was on Instagram, then went away for eight years, that changed dramatically. And so I think it's this elusive thing to talk about social media because it is dynamic. It's always changing. And in some ways, it's kind of almost like anthropology to me. Like there's something about it that I'm kind of understanding or trying to understand our culture and what it says about us as people as social media evolves. Yeah, absolutely. I remember for me, first experience with social media and this is going to date me here was myspace <laughs> oh yeah same yeah same on aol and i had my myspace page and i loved that i could put music on the page and you know i don't even really remember what i did with it i just posted i think random music and pictures and that was about it 
do you remember the um i think it was like closest friends they called it and this was like a very you know controversial area because like who was going to be picked to be in your closest friends yeah and you had like seven i think you could pick seven i don't know why they chose the number seven yeah and it was always kind of like well, you know, I've got to put my mom in there because she's going to be pissed off. And then my best friend absolutely has to go in there. And then, oh, wait, can't forget about grandma over here. She's going to be upset if she finds out. So it was always this, wait, who do I put in there? And who's going to be upset if I don't include them? Yeah. (laughs) Well, and then, you know, after MySpace, at least my memory of it, you know, is that Facebook came out. And at the time, Facebook was only for college kids and it was invite only at least early on and i think we'd be doing a disservice to this conversation if we didn't mention the movie the social network because it was i remember when that movie first came out and it was really interesting and you know i don't know mark zuckerberg personally so whether uh facebook really was spawned by this kind of um exclusionary energy of final clubs or not i don't know for sure Um, But I think it was a really interesting, you know, allegory that the movie was making that of this, you know, um, my husband will laugh at me because I always say that the trailer to The Social Network using the song Creep by Radiohead is the most beautiful, perfect, you know, uh, trailer I've ever seen because it really speaks to this moment, the zeitgeist, you know, we want to be important. We want to be special. And social media has given us the ability to curate our image in a way that has never been possible before. And so I remember, you know, the moment, because I, when I got into college, um, Facebook had just recently launched and a friend of mine was a year older. She had already gotten Facebook. And the moment I got an acceptance, they gave me an email with the acceptance. I had not actually, um, accepted the acceptance. I I got into the school, but I hadn't even said I was going there. And she made me a Facebook account for this school just so I could have Facebook because it was so cool to have Facebook. And I thought, well, shit, I better go to this school because I already have a Facebook account for them. So it was a really interesting moment in, uh, I think, the development of social media. Yeah, I came onto Facebook much later. Um, I think I actually resisted Facebook for quite some time until it was something that like, everyone was using and then people were like come on Seth why aren't you on Facebook because I was still quite young then and so I got on there and I remember feeling completely I felt very um, exposed like what do I do on here like what do I what do I put on here and it was it felt very different than MySpace for me it was not as personalized and it just kind of felt I don't know, a little bit more vulnerable and, and showy than than MySpace did. And so I felt very insecure on Facebook for the longest time. I didn't know what to post on there and what to say. And um, I, I don't think I used it even so much, really. I, like, I didn't even go on there and look at what other people were posting so much. I think I just had the profile because everyone said I needed to have it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, thinking about what MySpace was originally, you know, you kind of mentioned this with the music. I mean, and you could have HTML. Like I remember having like kind of a custom images and graphics behind my page. And it was sort of like this personal website. You know, in mm-hmm. some ways there was a lot of expression on that. And then Facebook was a lot more standardized. And I remember, because I'm old enough to say this, that um, when Facebook first came out, there was no news feed. And so if you wanted to see what your friends were up to, you went to their page and you kind of like looked what they're up to and you 
and actually there was no replies. So my way to reply would go to their page and comment, then they would come to my page and comment, and we'd be having this kind of public conversation that if you wanted to stalk someone, you'd have to be going back and forth between the pages to understand what was being said here. And I remember, you know, at first it felt fine because this was just college kids. You had to accept everybody, so every profile was private. And um, you had to go to people's pages. No one was seeing what you were up to. And so, of course, you know, I'm in college. There are drunk pictures of me out there, you know, and I didn't feel very uncomfortable with it. And even when I got my first job, because I started working full time pretty early, um, I remember that people at work, I was, um, it was actually funny enough, George Clooney's publicist I was working with, and she wanted to friend me on Facebook. And I said, and it was my 21st birthday, I remember, and I said, just to be clear, all these photos were taken the same night. They were all last night, so, you know, I just changed my outfit a lot of times. And she was laughing, but I remember that there was still a level of safety I felt with that. And then this news feed thing came out. And it was really weird because all of a sudden people I haven't talked to from high school or, you know, at this point it was still only college kids, I think. I don't remember entirely, but... Um, or, you know, it was a very limited audience still. So my mom wasn't on there, but it was strange because people were like knowing things about me that I didn't tell them. And I remember the first interaction I had with that where I was at an event and someone started telling me about something that had happened to me. And I was like, okay, A, it's my story. And B, like, this is really surreal. And, you know, I ended up years later um, when I kind of started this business, I was going through a lot of transformation. I started a blog and I wrote every single weekday. So that was just my thing. Like I was, if I had something to say, if I didn't have something to say, I wanted to find my voice. And I did that for about seven years straight. And at first I remember how surreal that was because now it wasn't even people that I knew telling me about my life. It was people I didn't know. Like all of the time people would be like, oh my God, well, I remember when Garrett said that thing. And I was like, what? What? Like, oh yeah, I guess I might have mentioned it. And it was a really weird moment because I think I worked in public relations. I had worked with a number of public figures and celebrities before. Um, never in my life did I ever want you know people to know intimate details about my life or to be in the spotlight. And so it was kind of a weird moment where I was like, oh, social media is kind of giving this like tabloid access to every person's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's so interesting too. If you, I mean, if you kind of look back. And granted, you've been on Facebook a little bit longer than me, but even when I joined kind of later in the game, you know, it was like people were very, um, I don't know what the word is for it, very um, sort of standoffish, I guess, about like what sort of things that were appropriate to, to put on Facebook and what things were kind of like, oh, that's sharing a bit too much. We don't talk. That's this is Facebook. And now looking at the things that people post on fa Facebook, it's like, a no holds bar. I mean, like everyone's just like yeah. posting whatever. I mean, if vagina pics were allowed on Facebook, I swear <laughs> to you, they would be up there every day. Like, look at what's going on down here. I mean, really people, people posting pictures of like, or, or videos of their children doing embarrassing stuff. And I'm like, I get a little bit worried sometimes about how, just how candid we get on social media and how tabloidish it's become. But I also find it really fascinating how quick that evolved. You know, I, the, the, 
something really interesting has happened in the last, you know, 15, 20 years maybe. And that is also this rise of reality TV in the way we know it today. You know, when I was younger, we had just the first inklings of reality TV. So we had, you know, The Real World or Survivor. And these were, you know, um, it wasn't like these people wanted to be famous so much as it was more of an art experiment. I mean, really, The Real World was kind of this artist experiment. These were all artists. They were living together. It was a lot more, in my mind, you know, conceptual art. And so there became this movement in, I think, the early to mid-2000s that, you know, the Lisa Kudrow show, uh, The Comeback, eviscerates. But this amazing movement where all of a sudden reality TV became a tool for people to project an image or curate an image. And of course, like anybody who's been on Instagram knows, I've seen so many like couples fighting on Instagram. I was like, that's not a real fight. Like you do not have your camera set up. You're not like, trust me, even when I try to get a good angle, it's not right. So like, you've got to really, you know, produce this entire process. And it becomes this curated, produced world. And I think where we were seeing that happening on TV, you know, keeping up with the Kardashians, and I think, um, what was it, A Simple Life with um, Paris Hilton and uh, Nicole Richie, and like all of those type of shows that are coming out, I think people wanted to replicate that. And they wanted to feel the sense of, you know, glamour. And again, I bring up that song, you know, um, Creep by Radiohead, because, you know, we wanted to feel special. And I think we still want to feel special. And I've seen, I saw a video the other day, it was a reel from somebody who said like, I know it sounds stupid, but like, I just really want to be famous. That's why I do this. Like, I just desperately want to be famous. And I think in some ways, you know, I'm not here to be elitist and hate on it because it is amazing for the first time, you know, I heard a model talking about this recently for the first time, models can go and manage their entire image and say, Hey, I want to be hired. I don't have to go through a middleman. Nobody needs to take a cut. Like I can create and be empowered over my own career. And especially for many women in the industry, especially entertainment industries, that's really the first time. So it's created so many opportunities for so many people and it has democratized so many things, but there is a downside to it, right? There is this ugly underbelly. We've seen the research on depression rates amongst teenagers, especially teenage girls and bullying and eating disorders. And there's a whole bunch of things that's going on with it. And so, you know, this is such an interesting conversation for me because we can go a thousand different directions, certainly down mm -hmm. that route. But there's also this way of just what does it mean to the average person? I mean, I'm sure all of us listening here, as much as we want to theorize, we're like, yeah, but like I'm also on social media. So what does that mean for me? And I think I equate social media for me to therapy because, and, and <laughs> I know that sounds really weird. But what I mean by that is when I went to my therapist, my current therapist for the first time, I said to her, it's really surreal to come in for the first time because it's decontextualized interaction. Like every other interaction in my life, it's like, oh, you know, this is my friend Mike, or this is this guy I met from, you know, I heard on a podcast. So, like, there's some context, right? But when I walk into therapy, she doesn't know me. Like, so I have to decide what is most subjectively relevant about my life. Mm -hmm. How do I explain myself or present myself to you when there is no context? And on the one hand, I can curate and make stuff up or make things seem better than ever. But on the other hand, if I do want to be authentic, how do I do that? And what mm -hmm. is important? And nobody can see every moment of my life, so I am curating. But what am I curating? And I think social media is really that same way of, you know, I want to help you know my work. I want you to help know who I am. I want to be as authentic as possible. But 
how do we do that, especially when there are these prescribed models that are very, very curated? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, like you said, this is sort of the, the double-edged sword of social media. It's provided us all with so much opportunity. It's put information within our reach and our ability to scan and scroll through and access information at insane levels, insane speeds that we're not capable, we weren't capable of when even I was a teenager. And yeah. I mean, granted, I'm, I'm getting up there in years, but at the same time, I don't feel very old. And so I'm kind of like, it's crazy to me how much this has evolved and changed and the speed at which things are accessible now due to social media. And it's a very powerful tool that when we use it in a way where it's a tool for us, it can be so beneficial. But then, as you said, there's this kind of like underbelly side to it. Um, you know, when we start talking about things like comparison culture or um, distraction or immediate gratification, how social media plays into these in a way that creates a lot of really destructive behaviors and, and mindsets within people because of how they're using social media. How would you speak to that? As far as, you know, it's so many things. I think, you know, we have to remember what's real. And I think, you know, also uh, technology has just changed a lot. So you mentioned, you know, when we were younger and how social media kind of first evolved. But also, you know, the iPhone, smartphones have not been around that long. I think we forget that it's been around for 15 years, the smartphone. And I was not an early adopter. So I didn't get one until about, you know, 10 years ago. So... Like, this is a very short amount of time in our history. And so if I wanted to use social media back in the day, I had to log on to my desktop. I didn't even have a laptop at first. So my desktop computer, which was stationary in one place, to be able to interact with this. Now, anytime I'm waiting in line for a bathroom or, you know, I'm bored scrolling, watching TV, like, I have access to this. And so it's just everywhere in our life in a way that even reality TV isn't. Like, I don't sit in front of my TV, not that I watch much reality TV, but watching reality TV as much as I do social media because it's on my phone. It's everywhere I go in my life. Mm. It's this companion I have in my pocket at all times. And I think that that has created this way where we can sometimes mistake it for real life because we interact with it so often. And, of course, we know that it, we know intellectually that everybody is curating their image of self. But it's really hard sometimes if we're having that down day and we don't feel like we've accomplished everything and we see other people doing things, we're like, oh my gosh, even though we intellectually know that's their best self, there's still that part of us that's like, I'm a failure, I'm not doing well, you know, maybe I should be doing it like that because we humans are very susceptible to conditioning, period. We know advertising works, right? Propaganda works. And so we now are surrounded by more conditioning than we've ever experienced before, right? And mm -hmm. This whole movement of influencers is really that. It's, you know, create like attempting to condition, saying, I'm a person who's very likable, and therefore, you know, you may want to use products that I'm using. And I don't know if you've seen, but this feels incredibly relevant to bring up. Um, Netflix right now has a new uh, documentary movie um, called Abercrombie White Hot about Abercrombie and Fitch's kind of rise in the 90s and um, – early 2000s. And so, you know, I may also be dating myself here, but I remember, you know, this world where Abercrombie kind of rose up and became popular. And, you know, I think I had one Abercrombie sweater that a friend gave me because it didn't fit him. I 
you know, never shopped there, although I will say I had a few pair of jeans from Hollister. But I, um, you know, it was interesting because uh, watching this documentary yesterday, the models were saying like, it was really weird because we were advertising clothing, but we were always naked. Like there was yeah. no clothing that we were wearing in these ads. Exactly. And, you know, it was a very curated, obviously racist. So, you know, the name White Hot is very clear. You know, obviously, you know, these are only or majority white people. But, you know, there was this image of the kind of the frat boy, the kind of um, and a lot of these people were chosen to be from the Midwest. And, you know, it was this very problematic culture where they started calling even the salespeople models and the idea was they didn't care if they were good salespeople were they attractive and did they seem popular and cool because mm -hmm. if they were seen wearing the clothing then consumers that you know aspired to be like them would want to wear that clothing mm -hmm. and in a lot of ways that is what influencer culture is i mean we can call it out on you know something like abercrombie but we've really normalized it on social media and sure some of these products are empowering products of course but this way that we've tried to say, you know, you are a high status person, therefore what you use must be part of that status. And if I bought that, I could be more high status. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this plays a lot into yeah, what I was saying, this comparison culture and it, this, um, this, the, in, the influencer culture really plays into that very much. And I, I find it, I don't know, I find it really interesting as, as a coach when I'm working with people how much this influences people in their ability to know even like what's most important for them. And they, they really are at this point and I don't necessarily blame social media. I, I blame the way we're using social media and how much we are allowing ourselves to sort of be influenced by it to, and to forget like what's important to us. I find it really interesting how many people out there when I'm working with them on one-to-one -one level as a coach, really have a hard time articulating what they want, what is most important for them in life, um, or is with you, with, with dealing with people's yeah. sensitivities, they've really forgotten what is important for them. And I think this plays into that. It's really hard, you know, we, you know, advertising, you know, in the 50s, let's say when, you know, TVs were first getting ubiquitous, um, you know, you had advertising, of course, to sponsor the content, but they were very straightforward, you know, ads, you clear this was an ad. And it was when you were watching TV the few hours at night with your family. And as, you know, things have evolved, you know, advertising has become more and more sophisticated where, you know, coming into, you know, the 80s, the 90s, ads became less about sharing a product and more about sharing an emotion and people kind of got if an ad entertained me enough i'll deal with the fact that it's you know um selling me something and so even you know the super bowl right we look at that like people really look forward to it because the point is these ads are now entertaining you they've become almost mini movies and so we're willing to put up with you know the advertising but there's still even though it's become more insidious there's some clear idea that this is an ad but now you get into the world of advertorials where it's like an article written that looks like an article, but it says sponsored somewhere really small, um, you know, which is something kind of cropped up even more so in the 90s and 2000s. And now we've evolved into this world where are we always advertising ourselves on some level? And what does that mean? And especially, you know, with dating apps, right? Like we kind of have to advertise ourselves in the dating world as well. And 
I am, again, feel like I'm dating myself, but fortunate in that I've never used a dating app or maybe not fortunate, depending how you look at it. I, you know, got with my husband before dating apps were really ubiquitous. And so I've seen experiences that a lot of my friends had and, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of them about their experiences of this. And, you know, I said, basically, I would never have swiped right. That's the right way. I've never have swiped right on my husband because we actually aren't compatible on paper. And so there's a lot of things I just wouldn't have known or seen because we're not baseball cards. And that's really hard to evaluate a human being based on, you know, a few attributes you read in a picture. Um, and so it's kind of, I think, in some ways, part of the zeitgeist that this idea that, you know, are we commodifying ourselves? And what does that mean? And, you know, in this kind of desire for connection, because, you know, research, I know we're going through a pandemic, so that obviously affects the research, but people are feeling lonelier than ever. And so like, yes, we have these tools for connection, but also people are feeling lonelier than ever. And for me, this brings up an opportunity many of us who are kind of consciously thinking about this have, which is the power of subversion. You know, I think subversion is always the most empowered we can be because it's cognizant of a dynamic and it kind of flips that dynamic on its head and it plays with it. It's, uh, for me, you know, reacting to something without centering that thing, kind of taking the power back. And so one thing I try to do on social media for anyone who follows me, and I'm by no means a social media expert, but I play with the idea of thirst traps quite a bit where I have actually had a post. I repost this like every three months. So if you haven't seen it lately, it'll come back out. But, <coughs> excuse me, of you're looking at thirst traps wrong. And I'll play with this because, you know, I have some boudoir photos and I want to play with, you know, sure, this picture may be really, you know, attractive to you, but instead of projecting all of your sexual power to that person, take that back inward. What was attractive for you? What does that say about who are you? What does that say about your own sexuality? And how can you use that to empower your life? And I think that there's something that really interests me about, do we have an opportunity here to play with these dynamics and have fun and kind of poke fun at ourselves and our own dynamics here? Because, you know, there is a dark underbelly, there is a danger to social media. And my hope is that we can take that and use it for its highest, make it empowering, subvert it, and make it actually authentic connection. Yes, I think, yeah, this is, this is absolutely important for people to understand is that social media is simply a tool. And kind of the, the things that we are, we are seeing as the dark underbelly, the struggle with, with social media, um, and, you know, with what, what you said here with thirst trap posts and things, is <clears throat> it's really how we approach it. And when you can take, when you can be a little bit self-aware and recognize why am I having this feeling with this post? Why am I having this feeling with, with this platform of social media? And you can understand where the emotion is coming from, where the true desire is, then we can, as you said, kind of flip it on its head and turn it into a tool of empowerment versus it being one of comparison and disempowerment and I'm not good enough and I need to be better and more like this person in order for me to be good enough and really use it as a way to even be more authentic, even though most people are using social media as a way to sort of become carbon copies of one another. And I feel like this yeah, is really I mean, important it, it to know. It is hard. I want to validate everyone for myself, all of us. Like, it's really hard because we're so inundated with this conditioning all day, every day. And inevitably, we're all going to have a bad day. And what do we do when we're having a bad day or overwhelmed? We scroll because it's easy. It's mindless, right? So there's kind of this way that we jump right on there and we're more susceptible, more susceptible to some of this conditioning. 
And I think, it, you know, first of all, if you ever need a social media break for mental health, take it, you know, delete it from your phone. It's not a big deal. You could always go back to it another time. Um, that's certainly there. And I think I also try to remind myself continuously, like, this isn't me. This isn't real. This is a way, just like if I met a friend at a party, I wouldn't tell them everything that's ever happened in my life. I couldn't. So there is curation that happens naturally, right? Just because I've got to, you know, give you the most relevant information to get to know me as quickly as possible. That's all that social media is. And so it's okay for me to remember, like, I don't have to evaluate this like, I think about my best friends. They know me. They know the whole me. You know, things on social media move incredibly quickly. And so there is this possibility that, you know, if people say negative things about me, it can spread very quickly. Or if people, you know, about somebody else, it can spread very quickly. And that can feel really scary. It can feel like I don't want to, you know, uh, say authentic things because people might not like it and I might, you know, come across as, I don't know, mean or elitist or pathetic or desperate or whatever it is that we're afraid that we're going to come across as. And so I think some of that makes us want to be a carbon copy because it's kind of safer in that way, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have to, um, you know, uh, assert ourselves or our authentic self. But I think that I can personally attest to, I have met some of my favorite clients from social media. And I will tell you, I have thought, you know, and this is a dark thought of mine, but I'm going to be vulnerable here. Oh gosh, everyone I get that comes in from social media is going to be really like superficial and basic and not be interested in deeper work. That was kind of my dark assumption coming into this. And couldn't be further from the truth. Actually, some of the smartest, deepest, most interesting people. I mean, we met over social media here. So like social media has fostered so many connections. I have some real life friendships of people in Boston that I actually met through Instagram who reached out to me. So the possibility is there. You know, the tool is really there. Yes, you know, the algorithm is polarizing us and showing us more of what we like. You know, yes, advertising and influencers and all this stuff are alive and apparent. And, you know, just like we need to be media literate and be able to tell, you know, what our media sources is, what's propaganda or what may not be a reliable source, we also need that discernment on social media. And I think we would do a great service to our youth if that started to be taught in schools, is how to interact with it because the bottom line is this is the reality of our world today mm -hmm. and this is where many people are getting their news and information and many people are making purchasing decisions i'm not going to pretend i've never bought something because i saw it on instagram i have i've seen an ad and like oh that looks cool i want that and you know so we're all no one is immune to this and i think like you said it's bringing that level of consciousness and education to how we're showing up there mm-hmm so you brought up two things that I really want to, I, I don't know which direction to go here to talk about because they're, they're both let's okay. I want to backtrack a bit in the, in the beginning of, of what you said there, you were talking about, you know, when we have a bad day and we come home and, you know, we're just feeling really down about ourselves. And what do we do? We pull out our phone and we start scrolling because it's so easy. Mm -hmm. And this is one, one thing that I, I find to be really interesting about social media and it really polarizes people. Um, as far as people see social media as either social media is a distraction or it's not a distraction. And I kind of want to talk about that a little bit, like the distraction aspect of social media, because I feel like we've sort of disempowered ourselves in that conversation um, as far as social media being a distraction. There's a really cool um, book and, and, and a man out there, his name is Neil Rael, and he has a book called Indistractable. And he sort of addresses this. 
And I've, I've listened to several podcasts that he's come on and talked about this. And I think his perspective is so cool when he specifically addresses social media and the fact that, you know, yes, there it can become a very distracting thing when we know it's available in our back pocket and we're trying to avoid certain emotional experiences. We're trying to avoid um, uncomfortable emotional experiences. We're trying to avoid the discomfort of our own growth. And then we have this tool available to us, but that's also, it's always right there and it's can be very mind numbing to just scroll through. And so it's very easy for us to turn things like Instagram and then we have the developers of TikTok who created a social media platform that's actually designed to be even easier to fall into distraction with. And it's very easy for us to just kind of reach in our back pocket and pull this thing out and forget what's important to us and just start mindlessly scrolling and not doing the things that are important for us. How do you, what do you think about this whole entire aspect of social media here? I, you know, I love this because I think one thing we're really digging into, and for me, I'm always, you know, social media is just a tool, right? But I'm looking at what are the deeper kind of patterns, energetics, these are things I'm interested in. You know, I think what we're really talking about here is disassociation. And, you know, anything can be a tool for embodiment or disassociation, right? So, like, I can mindlessly watch TV as a way to disassociate and distract, for sure. I can also, after, you know, really intense session, put in a show that doesn't make me think too hard to be have to kind of feel my body and sink in and go a little bit deeper. And so I think that, you know, for me, like social media has given us this amazing tool for disassociation, right? I can like, after a long day of work, completely numb out and distract myself, as you say. And it is a, um, in a way, an opioid, right? It is a, uh, a numbing agent. And so... We have a number of those, but I want to, you know, be clear here because I think sometimes we talk about certain tools as for disassociation and certain tools as for embodiment, and that's not always true. Like food can bring us into our body or bring us out of it, right? We can certainly use food to disassociate. Many of us have. Sex can be a way to come into our body or a way to numb out and leave our problems or things. And so I think, you know, social media is absolutely a tool and I don't want to give it too much credit, but I also want to say that, you know, it that pattern, that desire to disassociate is coming from somewhere else. It's just made it easier for us to do that very thing. And so, um, and for sure, I'm, you know, I'm not here to judge when is it appropriate to use conscious disassociation, when is it not? Like that's everybody's empowered decision. But I think that for me, I kind of try to check in with the intention or the why. Why am I doing this? You know, am I going to mindlessly scroll for 10 minutes because I'm exhausted and I just want to do that and then put it away and do something else? Fine. Like I, as long as I'm clear on why I'm using it and not fooling myself with something, I'm totally cool with that. And I think that, um, you know, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're being productive or that we're connecting because we are seeing lots of people. And so there's this way that like, oh, like I'm going to like jump on social, you know, I, I've heard this from so many people like, um, spend 30 minutes a day connecting on social media, right? Like that's ad advice I've heard from many uh, social media teachers out there. And I think that it's very easy. First of all, I, I'll just tell you, I don't do that. It seems a little contrived for me, but I understand the point behind it. But I, I, can, I think that a lot of people are like, oh, I'm just scrolling on social media and therefore I'm having connection. Or my cousin who is a lot, you know, she's 10 years younger than I am. So I think she's Gen Z or maybe she's still millennial, but early millennial, uh, kind of the younger end. She, um, I remember one time she was in a high school and I was on the phone with her, which actually this is going to make me sound really old, but 
one thing I don't understand is why younger people love to FaceTime always. Like she never, ever, ever calls me. It's always FaceTime. But then sometimes the phone's looking up at the ceiling of her car. So I don't understand it. But anyway. My brother does this too. My younger brother does this too all the time. And I'm just like, can you not just voice call me? <laughs> I don't understand the FaceTime. And I also don't understand how popular voice memos are because I thought we hate voice messages. But anyway, um, so, you know, the, um, so she, she FaceTimed me. And she looked really glamorous. So I said, oh, yo, Crystal, are you going out tonight? What are you doing? And she said, no, I'm just going to take some pictures for Instagram. <laughs> and it was a really interesting moment because I was kind of like, but like, that's not the real thing. Like you got dressed up and you want to look good. Yeah, and, that's, I mean, and maybe it feels empowering to have beautiful pictures of yourself. Sure, I'm not going to shame you about that. But, you know, I think it's this interesting moment of, is that real connection? Like, what? why are we using it? And it's totally okay if you want to take beautiful pictures and feel good about yourself. There's never anything wrong with that. But if we think that, that if we're telling ourselves that's connection, we're kind of intentionally lying to ourselves to um, disassociate. And there's nothing wrong with conscious disassociation. I always say disassociation can save our lives. It's the shock to get out of a car accident. You know, it can allow us, you know, during uh, assault to be, you know, remove our mind from the moment and be safe and integrate later. Disassociation is a powerful spiritual tool we have as humans. But if we, that's our default, we're never actually integrating or being here in the moment and able to kind of process our feelings that we experience. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, this is, I think disassociation, distraction kind of go hand in hand here um, as far as that we use social media for kind of both and the, to, to numb out, but also to sort of um, forget the things that are important for us to do, but are going to require for us to be a little bit uncomfortable to get into doing them. And it's so much easier to reach in the back pocket and have the immediate gratification of scrolling through social media than hopping on our computer and starting to, I don't know, write the first chapter of that book that you've been wanting to write or, mm -hmm. you know, to have that conversation with your, your spouse, your significant other, with your child that you've been wanting to have, but that's going to be a little bit uncomfortable to start. And I feel like we have disempowered ourselves in how we see social media as the distraction versus it being about how we're choosing to use it. As you said, it's not that social media is disassociation or social media is distraction. It's are we consciously making the decision to do it or are we inadvertently making the decision to, to distract ourselves or disassociate because we don't want to look at what we're uncomfortable with looking at. And I think this is, yeah, I mean, I, I think social media has just made it easier to distract ourselves, but it hasn't, didn't create the desire to distract in the first place. And I, so I think when we understand that, you know, it's, it's hard. Like, uh, you know, there was, um, so my husband was at a conference a few years ago and I am, the name is escaping me, but it was the, one of the speakers was a um, victim of the Columbine shooting. And so he was, um, a bullet pierced his bicep and went into another student. Um, he didn't die, obviously. He was a speaker there. But because of this, you know, this was also at a time when opioids were more freely prescribed. And so he became addicted to opioids um, after, you know, being on pain medicine for, you know, this injury and for the trauma that he um, endured. And he spoke about, you know, he suffered with addiction and he was now talking to this audience. 
And he said, you know, what I want to be clear is like, we've become a culture that doesn't want to feel things like thing. We, and we have a lot of tools. We've created so many tools and some of them are beautiful. They're amazing, you know, life-saving tools um, that we need, you know, but like this capacity to, you know, um, and I'm by no means uh, judging any parent that's, you know, giving an iPad because believe me, um, I, I tell all of my friends, please do what you need to do to survive. But, you know, we, I pull out a phone when I'm, you know, feeling uncomfortable. I, you know, can watch a TV show. And now, you know, when I was growing up, we didn't have that many channels. Today, I can watch any, I mean, Netflix comes out with 80 movies a week. I mean, it's insane, the, you know, speed at things. So uh, we have this ability to distract ourselves more than we ever have. And, you know, any inclination we have to distract, we can go into that and not have to feel certain things. And I think, you know, it can create, at least I think about people in my life who um, have been very involved in, you know, distracting themselves, tend to have a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of unprocessed emotion that goes on there. And it's not always fun to feel everything we're feeling. And so for sure, we can take moments, pauses, you know, distract ourselves, take delays. But at some point, we need to integrate what is going on in our lives um, or else we're constantly disassociating and it can create, you know, anxiety, trauma, depression, all of these things going on for us. And, um, you know, I would love to see, you know, what I love about Instagram at its highest point is when we get to have real conversations about these things. And when we get to have not necessarily the pop psychology, because I have issue there too, but when we get to see, you know, um, real conversations about these dynamics and allowing this to be a tool for empowerment. I think, like you said, you know, over and over again, that um, these are just tools. And this ability to disassociate is not new. It's not something that ha it's existed as long as humans have existed. Mm -hmm. And so we've just created easier for ourselves to distract or disassociate. And when we understand that, we can be more conscious about that. When we're disassociating, which is fine, we can consciously do it. I do it all the time. And when we are consciously embodying or integrating something. Absolutely. And this ties into the other part of the, what you said earlier that I want to talk about, because, you know, a lot of times, not only are we trying to distract ourselves from something going on, like in our immediate feeling and our immediate surrounding or life, and we can use social media for this, but also, you know, you spoke about the, the algorithms on social media and there's this concept of, of confirmation bias. And, you know, we have the reticular activating system. And so we tell our brains what to look for. And then our brains sort of go out there in the world looking for evidence of the things that we tell it to look for. Social media kind of does the same thing. It's kind of like we have a second reticular activating system in our phone on multiple platforms. And oftentimes I find people will distract themselves from uncomfortable realities in life in general by slipping into social media and allowing the algorithm to sort of curate their experience of life through how we how it sort of filters out the things that we're not interested in and puts this feed of all the things that we believe in that we want to believe in and puts out all the stuff that we don't want to hear about we don't want to believe in we don't want to see and I would be curious what your thoughts are on this because there's a lot there. <laughs> yeah, lots of thoughts. You know, I think that um, historically, you know, we've always had news biased one way or the other, right? And so historically, yes, you could, depending on what newspaper you read, you tended to get, you know, different news. But a newspaper is uh, one-dimensional media and it's not 
24-7. It's not coming all the time. And so as, you know, TV news, we got, you know, entire stations that were known to lean one way or the other um, that were on 24-7, that started to change things. You know, in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, we really saw a movement there where, yes, we saw, you know, there's definitely more polarization. Um, but, you know, the algorithms, which to be in all fairness to algorithms, you know, their job is more to show you what you think you'll like. So there is this kind of, I guess I'll use the word altruistic. I don't know if that's the right word to use, but I don't think it's quite malicious right. in its intention. But what happens is if we like something, it's going to show us more of what we like. So yes, we have this inherent confirmation bias. And then social media is actually only giving us the media that confirms that bias. And I think talking about subversion, one of the companies I really like, I think it's a Canadian company called Ground News. Um, I don't know if you know of it, but just for anyone uh, listening here, they... Um, show they kind of do studies of when a news article breaks what percentage of that is covered by more you know left-leaning publications and more right-leaning publications and will show you if you tend to be more right-leaning or left-leaning here's what you might have missed that week and so they'll actually show you lots of news that you may want to hear to account for our bias and so i think it's really wonderful and that's a beautiful way and they'll actually also take one news story and then show you like five different headlines from left to right you know through center how they portray the same news and so it gives you so it's a really empowering tool i i follow them on instagram they have a newsletter you can even sign up for like i'm right leaning and they'll show you a lot of left leaning stuff so lots of things that you can um do if uh you'd like to but yes i think that you know obviously many of us saw um that instagram documentary a few years ago the social dilemma um where you know it exposed how dark this can get and radicalization is happening and I actually just read an article the other day about um, video games because of the interconnectedness of video games, how a lot of radicalization is happening on video games with young, impressionable minds. People are kind of coming on there, um, asking kids some of their issues, you know, blaming it on certain people and that can kind of, you know, um, spiral. And so it is a little bit scary because also, you know, I did grow up with a smartphone when I was a baby, but my niece is, you know, my niece has, you know, she, in some ways, it's amazing how quickly they learn how to find YouTube videos they like. I mean, three, <laughs> four-year-olds, like they are so adept with this. Yeah. And, you know, it, there is that danger that, especially at a very young, impressionable mind, I mean, let alone me, I am impressionable enough at my age and, you know, I have to be vigilant with my news sources. But when you're talking about a child, you know, having access to this stuff, it is a little bit scary because it definitely is polarizing polarizing us in different directions. And again, um, I want to reiterate my uh, desire to see media literacy, social media literacy in schools. I think it would be super helpful to talk about, you know, how to make sure that you are vetting your news or getting well-rounded perspectives or organizations like Ground News that help us to see what we're probably missing. Because I think the other thing is we're missing it from all sides. And so I think sometimes we can get in this very you know, left, liberal, intellectual, elitist bubble here. Um, we, you know, I'm more liberal myself. I can certainly be biased in many ways. And so I, you know, I will say there are certain family members, I'm not going to name names, who do watch Fox News on repeat. And I will certainly go to foxnews.com, sometimes begrudgingly, um, and read headlines just to get a sense of, okay, what is even being said here? If I want to refute it or I want to talk about it, at least I know what's being said here. And so sometimes that can be really um, 
Yeah, I think it's just really important that we kind of even understand what other people's realities are looking like because we can, you know, my husband is from rural Pennsylvania. I can promise you living in Boston, what I think is important is not always what people in rural Pennsylvania think is important. And uh, I can be very elitist and like, well, this is important. How could you not know about this? And you are ignorant rather than taking a moment and being like, well, what is important to them and actually having conversation? And that's um, been really empowering every time I go down to his hometown to just talk to people there about, you know, what news they're having that I don't know and vice versa. Yeah, I think so too. And I, like you said, I, I don't think the algorithm, you know, the algorithm is just doing a job, a job to, to curate what we're asking from social media to give us. We want them to show us things that we want to see. And when we become aware of this and we be, when we become aware of what the algorithm is going to do for us and we become aware of how our own confirmation bias works and, you know, our brain works the, in finding evidence of what we want to find, we can use it in a way that actually opens us up to, um, to seeing more and sort of getting outside of ourselves. I, I actually go about on social media um, I will follow people intentionally that have controversial views, like views that are, go against what I teach or not even against, but they're just, they're very different from what I teach. Mm -hmm. And I will, you know, purposefully on social media, um, like posts that actually speak the, op the opposing position to what I take on a certain, and sort of to, to shake up and confuse the algorithm as far as like what I want to see, what I want to hear on social media so that I can purposefully get myself outside of my own confirmation bias bubble and intentionally experience, um, you know, experience outside of my own, you know, what, what are people in, you know, I'm an expat American living in Switzerland. What are, you know, expats living in other countries experiencing? What are people that move from the country where I'm currently living in to the U S experiencing, you know, I am only seeing it from one side, just, different things like that, that I find when I, I see my social media showing me too much of what I, what I'm comfortable with and what I want to see. I'm like, okay, we've got to, we got to switch this up here. And I think just teaching people that and teaching people how they can use that to their advantage can actually turn social media into a tool where it's not just about confirmation bias. You know, the algorithm is designed to promote confirmation bias because that's what we're saying we want from it but we can use that to our advantage when we understand that. And I think that's what you're saying when you would like social media literacy classes in school. I think this would be extremely important. I would love to take one. So yes, even, you know, today, but especially for the kids. And I think that it's just, you know, we've talked about the history a bit. Social <clears throat> media grew and has just exploded. Even the last 10 years with smartphones becoming more ubiquitous, um, it is everywhere. And so, we just couldn't keep up and we don't, you know, uh, we haven't evolved to be able to discern as quickly as it's exploded as it's evolved culture. And I think that it's always helpful for me to take a pause and kind of sit with and think about what is this doing to me? How is it changing my beliefs? How is it, you know, and how quickly is that happening? And am I having these conversations in real life with people around me? particularly my husband's not on social media. So with people who aren't on social media, I have to kind of check myself because, um, you know, we all, nobody is immune to um, kind of propaganda or conditioning that we think we are. And so being able to just check with what's real. And I think 
at the end of the day, that's what, if I had to sum up my kind of thoughts about social media is what's real, what is really happening here? Why am I using social media? Um, what's real in my life? You know, I can promote myself any way I want to, but what's real about me getting back in touch with that? You know, what real connections can I make here? If I can get back in touch with what's real and what's true um, and make sure that I constantly am tethering myself to that, I can have a much better experience on social media. Yes, absolutely. So Mike, I know you're, we're running short on time here. You've got a busy schedule today. So I think this is a good stopping point for the conversation. There's so many more things we could talk about here. Really, I could probably go on for hours, but let's leave the conversation here. I think we've hit quite a few interesting um, aspects of social media that's going to be helpful for people to just maybe just become more aware of how they're allowing social media to use them versus using social media for them. Um, and that's really kind of what I wanted to get out of the conversation today is how we can begin, you know, kind of like I, I, I use the, the analogy all the time that our brain is the tool for us, but oftentimes we let our brains use us and we become the tool to the brain. Same with social media. And I really want people to, like you said, social media is not going anywhere. It's just developing. It's going to keep on evolving. The question is, can we learn to use it as a tool for us in the most authentic way that promotes the growth we want to see in our life versus it's Absolutely. using us. So, all right. Any closing thoughts you want to say before we let, before I let you go and. Oh gosh, so many things, you know, I, I just think that um, social media has created, you know, I know we were a little down social media here, but it's created so many amazing opportunities for so many of us you know, whether they are small businesses being able to take off and reach clients all over the world, whether it is allowing, you know, um, uh, people to join together in, you know, movements, social justice movements, you know, uprisings against, you know, uh, violent or problematic governments. Like there's been so many empowering things that can happen from this. And so just recognizing that again, what's real and can we use it as a tool? Can we be conscious about this process? And can we remember that it is always okay to delete or close it down for a while? You do not have to, just like you don't have to pick up that phone every five minutes. I lock my phone, not lock it, but I close my phone in a drawer after dinner and I choose not to use it. And it's just a practice I've always had that I really love and it allows me to remember what's real at night. After work, I'm gonna hang out with my husband. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mike. It was a pleasure as always to have you on. Thank you for sharing your, your experience, your insight on the topic. And um, yes, everyone, I hope you all enjoyed the conversation today and um, I'll talk to you all again soon. All right, ciao. Hey, thank you for listening in this week. I hope you enjoyed the content of this episode. If you did, please subscribe or follow this podcast to receive the newest episodes every week as I bring them to you here on the Connect Your Health to Life coaching channel. Ratings, reviews, and comments are always appreciated. These allow me to know more of what my listeners would like in the podcast and allow for more people who may be searching for a podcast just like this one to find the Connect Your Health to Life coaching channel. If you would like more information about me and the work that I do with my clients one-on-one, -on -one, then please visit my website at www.slch.ch. Again, that is www.slch.ch. You can also find me on social media on Instagram at sethlusk underscore coaching. Again, that is sethlusk underscore coaching. And on Facebook in my free Facebook group community called A Healthy Life Connection. 
We would love to have you in the group, and it's only three membership questions that you have to answer to join. And again, it's entirely free. And if you need any further information or just want to say hello, feel free to send me an email directly at slusk.health at slch.ch. Again, that is slusk.health at slch.ch. Thank you again so much for listening, and I look forward to our next time together. Ciao.